You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Something came up. But James, I need you. So does England. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club. I'm so glad you've joined us. That's right, I'm using my suave voice this evening because we're going to be entering the world of Bond. James Bond. And we actually have, I'm just going to spoil it right up front, folks, a fantastic Bond movie to talk about and I can't wait to bring in my guests who I couldn't do this show without uh Christy it's great to have you back on the show I know I'm so excited and man I can't wait to talk about the stunts and the car in this movie it was so epic I I mean when you when you have a car go into the water and turn into a submarine I mean it's it's like they're trying to do that in the new Kingsman movie and it's like anyway let's it's awesome uh and of course if we're gonna talk bond we're gonna have champion is that you behind that luscious beard oh is it i go by champion john champion it's a pleasure to be here as always (laughs) and look this we're already starting the show with all of our spoilers intact um i'm just gonna warn you the audience can't see me, but you, Matt, and Christy, you can see me. I'm going to have a smile on my face behind this luscious beard the entire time. I cannot tell you that in rewatching this movie for our show, every time Bond 77 cranked up in the soundtrack, I got the biggest grin on my face. There was so much in this movie that made me happy, and I cannot wait to share my love of this movie with the two of you and with our listeners. I, I, I can't hear you over the sound of how awesome your beard is. <laughs> I, it just, I'm so Should glad. Should I do some new headshots? I'll do some new headshots. <laughs> I'll submit them to the show. You totally, we'll get them out there on Facebook. Yes, we, yeah. we need yeah. to get those out to folks because John's looking fantastic. And I absolutely 100% <laughs> agree with you. Um, I had a, I really did. I had a blast watching this movie. And so uh, I'm so glad that, uh, too, um, before we even talk about where you can find us in the show and all that kind of stuff, I wanted to uh, stop for a moment. And uh, what's wonderful about doing this episode now and when it fell is that, well, we lost somebody very important to this series. We lost Sir Roger Moore, and I am very excited for the fact that we actually get to um, remember him through his best work as James Bond. And so I just wanted to ask you guys, um, having that happen so recently, 
Do you have any favorite memories of him from interviews or anything like that that really stick out to you about Roger Moore? You know, I can't think of a particular moment other than just to say that every time he did appear in an interview, he came across as so uh, obviously charming, obviously sophisticated, but with the driest sense of humor. I mean, and he really brought that to the role. Um, It sounds so cliché when you say it um, uh, about famous actors who are immortalized on screen, literally immortalized on screen, whether it's somebody from the past, uh, Cary Grant or, or somebody like that who is so bigger than life, but you get to see them in their prime at their best doing incredible work. And again, watching this movie for this show had such a smile on my face to see this guy who we lost only just weeks ago as of the recording of this show. Um, And he was 89 years old. Um, To see him at this point in his life in his, what, mid-late 40s, just looking magnificent, just owning every scene that he is in and being completely magnetic on screen. Um, What a legacy to leave behind. You know, uh, he he is one of those actors who, and that's why I mentioned Cary Grant a moment ago, he's one of those actors who, regardless of the range that they had, they brought personality to the role. And that's really what we see here when he's at his best. It's that sly, fun, quirky, sophisticated personality that, I'm just going to say it, nobody could do it better. Yeah, I I completely agree, John. And I love, too, that I guess I would say my favorite memory of him is not just one, but, you know, I love to say he reminds me of the the funny side of Bond, I guess, if you can say that, you know, that um, before, you know, with Connery, Bond was usually pretty serious and, you know, about the mission and women were dispensable and, and still more brings that kind of Um, side to Bond but he also to me was the king of all of the campiness in good ways and bad ways sometimes but I'll always remember him for that and for the bad puns and you know as as much as sometimes they bug me they also are memorable and make me laugh and that's what I remember about him and that through all of it he still keeps this suave and you know looks great in a suit and can be that um very masculine, take charge kind of guy at the same time as being that campy fun guy. There's something about that that I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned because there's the, the level of camp and humor. And this may be the ultimate, well, maybe not the ultimate, maybe it's the penultimate of Bond being self-aware. You know, we talked way back at Dr. No about how the the only obligation the filmmakers had was to the story. They didn't need to meet an audience audience expectation because there wasn't already an audience expectation in place. But every movie after Dr. No, you're trying to match and then exceed an expectation. And Bond is super self-aware in this movie, (laughs) you know? And there are moments that are played very true and very grounded and moments that absolutely are not. 
Um, would Sean Connery have pulled a fish out of a submarine car? I, I don't, maybe, maybe he would have given the chance to have a submarine car. We don't know because we never had a movie where Sean Connery had a submarine car. But I'll tell you this, Sean Connery wore a terry cloth bathrobe and he also had quips like shocking, positively shocking, which set the groundwork, it set the stage for us to arrive exactly where we are in the Bond pantheon. So they exist completely interlocked. I, I, I think it's a, a mistake to think that there is Bond A and Bond B and Bond C and that they never sort of bleed over into each other. They all are inextricably linked. And we get, we get variations on flavor every time we, we plug one of those actors into a movie. And, and it's a combination of that person, that personality, the script, the director, the time period. I think that plays a big role in this, simply uh, the way that we talked about the time period with the last two, well, actually the last three movies that we discussed. Um, so there, there's a lot to chew on here. You know, the thing that I remember most, actually, uh, I was reminded of in this movie with Roger Moore, and it was the way in which he would say the most ridiculous things with the straightest of faces. When he <laughs> says, when one is in Egypt, one should delve deeply into their treasures. And then there's a pause for about two and a half seconds where he's still holding the straight face, even though he said the most ridiculous thing and the most punny thing ever. It's, it, he's a master at that. And so it's, he brought something new to Bond. He was finally able to make it his own. And, and, and that's why, at, you know, we say there's a Connery Bond and there's a, a Roger Moore Bond and there's, you know, the Dalton Bond. There are all these Bonds, but you're absolutely right, John, that they all have a link and they all play off each other and they all uh, work in concert with one another for different reasons because of their time period and who the person is playing them uh, and what kind of characteristics of the character kind of get maybe played up more or downplayed depending on who it is inhabiting the role at that time and uh, for me that's what I remember so much about Roger and I, I just I love that this film reminded me of just what a master at the deadpan this guy is but there are two moments and I, I realize you know we, we've just started recording we're already sort of derailing our own show here <laughs> to just throw out all these great thoughts and memories and and moments but there are two moments in this movie that I had completely forgotten about because I think if you haven't seen this in a few years, um, and this is probably the Bond movie I've seen more than any of the other movies, maybe with the exception of Goldfinger. Um, there are two moments that really stood out to me because I think they get overshadowed by Submarine Car, by Ski Jump, by all, all these other big moments. One is a throwaway line in the bar in Cairo where we mention Bond's wife. We mention him being yes, married. Yes, And he has a very real reaction to that, which I thought was fantastic. And the other is that, okay, you open the movie with this absolutely amazing stunt work of the ski jump. If that's all they had done with it, if that's all we had was just a ski jump and you cut to the credits, we would have all still been blown away by one of the greatest stunts ever committed to film. But an hour and a half later, 
you have a reference back to that scene where Anya figures out that Bond killed her lover. And it's another scene that is underplayed and it's real and it absolutely grounds what we saw in the pre-credit sequence. It's a terrific moment because, other, yeah, otherwise you could have just walked away saying, well, that was silly fun. But by throwing in that line and connecting those plot points, you actually gave weight to that thing that was total science fiction at the beginning. And I think that's one of the things that you mentioned, the, the scene in the bar where she casually brings up that he's been married. And the way that he does react to that, I think actually he pays the best service to Honor Majesty's Secret Service by the way that he reacts. You see the coldness turn on immediately. All yeah. the charm is gone. And that's yeah. something that nobody touches, nobody talks about with James Bond. There's a part of him that will always be locked away that was Tracy's and nobody else can get to. And I thought that more... Uh, you know, strangely enough, we're talking about his humor, but the way he plays that scene is so deadly serious um, and, and so wonderfully done because it's, it's, it's not forceful. It's, it's almost understated, but there's a sense of real danger in it, too. Like, don't push me, lady. Don't push me. Um, and I, I just, I think, you know, Roger had so much to him as Bond, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just beyond grateful that Roger Moore, Sir Roger Moore, had a fantastically wonderful life. It was full. It was rich. We all got to see it. Um, he talked about it many, many times, the blessings that he had. And so to lose him now doesn't feel like such a loss when you know that he felt fulfilled in his life. And what more could you ask for in your life? Um, to have touched people around the world by your portrayal of a character, but also his amazing work uh, with charity and just the man that he was, the character of the man, um, is something that I think we could all want to live up to. And so he, he's an inspiration on film and off film, but probably more off film um, because the man that Roger Moore was is the kind of man that I think, or the kind of person that we would all want somebody to say we were when we go. And so, you know, I, I think what an, what an incredible person. And, um, you know, if you want to share your memories, I, I would love to share your memories with us of Roger Moore, the favorite things that you have. Uh, let us know on, on, on our Twitter at Trek FM, um, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. Uh, you can also, uh, Go to the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group. That's a great place to share with us. Just type Babel in the search field. You'll find us. You can join John and Christy and all the other listeners. Uh, we'd love to hear about that. Or if you've got uh, something even more, go to trek.fm slash contact. Choose the show. Choose the 602 Club. That'll come to us, and we'll be able to talk to you more about that. Um, and, of course, you know you can find all the shows here on iTunes at iTunes.com slash TrekFM, featured provider. Check out everything we do here for Trek FM. Uh, and, um, yeah, hit us up with a, a star rating and review while you're there. And um, But uh, I would, I'm putting that call out to everybody who listens to this show. Uh, make sure you uh, let us know your Roger Moore memories because I'd, I'd really love to hear that. Um, right, we, we better do the show because I'm going to get choked up. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm quite Seriously. serious. I mean, absolutely, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, about his... <laughs> 
his presence <laughs> and, and what you just said about him is absolutely true, and uh, we, we should all be so lucky. Mm. Uh, amen. Hey, <laughs> gosh, wow. Mm. Okay, uh, we're going to try to continue Bond now, and one of the things uh, this might help is we're going to talk to a uh, lot of the issues that were behind the scenes. Um, we mentioned last time that it was going to be Salzman's last contribution to Bond, but this actually really threw the the creation of this Bond into a whirlwind because they didn't know when they were going to actually be able to do the next movie because they had to get the Salzman question figured out before they could move forward with this film. And it's it's disappointing and frustrating that, that not only did Salzman have to go through the financial troubles, but his wife, uh, they found out he she had terminal cancer at the time. So, I mean, he is dealing with the worst things. And it really puts into perspective that, you know, it's a Bond movie. It's a movie. And this was a person's real life. And unfortunately for Saltzman, it kind of crumbled a little bit at this point. On top of that issue of, of, of everything that's happening behind the scenes, and finally Saltzman is able to sell his shares of the Bond franchise, and it basically just becomes Broccoli. He's the only one at the helm. And so it's all riding on only his shoulders at this point. And he, he sink or swim uh, because... He'll get all the glory or he'll get all the pain if this doesn't work. And one of the problems uh, they were having was for director. Um, And I don't know how many people know this, but uh, they actually approached Steven Spielberg in his post-production of Jaws to ask him if he wanted to do James Bond. How do you think that would have turned out? I'd, I'd be a little bit worried about that, to be quite honest. Um... I, Jaws is a great movie. I don't know that Steven Spielberg. He certainly, he certainly was a seasoned filmmaker early on. He certainly excelled early on. But there's something about the scope of the Bond films that I think needs even more. Maybe, maybe more than what Steven Spielberg had in 1977. I'm glad it worked out the way that it did. I think he needed Guy Hamilton because you needed that feel of You Only Live Twice, and there are so many parallels between You Only Live Twice and The Spy Who Loved Me, I think it was the right combination to sort of reach back to something that had worked pretty well for Bond in the past to reinvent Bond now in the 70s. Yeah, I want to add in, too, just thinking about the other Spielberg films, you know, he's always been more sci-fi, so I don't know how a director whose real bread and butter is that kind of thing would do directing a Bond film. <laughs> that seems foreign to me. And, and it, what's so interesting about that, so any Star Wars fan will know that after George Lucas directed Star Wars, Film is out. He goes to Hawaii. Steven Spielberg is on the shores of Hawaii with George Lucas. They're walking in the sand. And he's talking about this idea that maybe he'd want to direct a Bond film. Uh, And so this is obviously a few years after this. And George is like, well, you don't want to do that. I've got something better. It's uh, 
It's uh, this uh, <laughs> this fantastic uh, archaeologist, uh, in- Indiana Smith. That's, that's what we're gonna. So it's so funny that he says no to Bond, but then ends up creating a almost Americanized version of Bond in a lot of ways in the Indiana Jones character with George Lucas. And so I think Steven could have done it, but I think that I'm glad it didn't work out for him at this point because then he goes and creates Indiana Jones with Lucas and we get a whole other franchise that I'm in love with. And so I don't know if that happens if he does Bond here. Um, Interesting enough, they turn, you know, let's just get Guy Hamilton. And he ends up backing out because he gets an opportunity to direct Superman. But then not, because Richard (laughs) Donner takes over. (laughs) Yeah, um, which that would have been really interesting. I'm trying to think of Guy Hamilton directing Superman and not Donner. I just... Hmm. Yeah. No, I yeah. Oh, that that's that's a tough call. No, I Donner's the right guy. He, he's the yeah, right guy. Absolutely. For that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, let's put it this way. I think Donner is to that Superman, obviously, as let's say Patty Jenkins is to the Wonder Woman film right now. Ooh, you know, nice one. I mean, I really yes, do think. Yes. Or or I know so many people would say as Nolan was to Batman. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. so when you when you think of these directors. Uh, it's it's hard sometimes to think of anybody else doing it. Or, I mean, gosh, we just talked about him. Steven is to Indiana Jones. Can you imagine somebody else directing an Indiana Jones movie and it not right. being Steven Spielberg? So, right. Um, they end up with Lewis Gilbert, who had directed You Only Live Twice. And, you know, we talked about that movie. It was a, it's a completely average Bond film. It's fun. There are some issues with it, but I mean, it's got some great over-the-top action. You know, it's the volcano lair. Can can you go wrong with the volcano mm-hmm. lair? Probably nope. not. No. Nope. Nope. Uh, but the... Oh, by the way, can I point out a volcano lair with a monorail? That's true. <laughs> can I... Okay. Can, and I, then, get a, and can now, I get a yeah. monorail in here? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and, then, and then we get a super tanker with a monorail in this one. Yes. So, what is it with right monorails? Lewis Gilbert and I, we, I, you know... Separated at birth, <laughs> I don't know, by, by about 52 years. But but the, the man likes the monorail. I like that man. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, um, it just reminds me, and, and Christy, you'll appreciate that this in the Clone Wars when they have the, uh, the huge ship of Grievous's, the Malevolence, and it's so big, there's a monorail system in the middle of that. Yeah. Which I'm pretty sure just harkens back to all the Bond films that have monorails. So, yeah, it's a long-storied history of the monorail. Maybe we should just do a whole 602 Club supplemental on the monorails and films. History of the monorail. Sign me up. (laughs) Yes. Oh, sign me up. I'm so there. John's in heaven. John's in heaven. I'm so there. Yes. Okay. So, other crazy thing about this movie that's behind the scenes, when Fleming sells them the rights, he only sells them the title for this movie not the plot selfish so they've got it they're up they're they're up a title without a plot i don't even know if that's a saying but i just yeah (laughs) trying to make it anyway forgive me i apologize I'm, i'm not as good at the puns as roger moore um so they have to make this whole thing up themselves and they definitely you can see the places where they kind of steal different things but this actually becomes the place in which 
the choosing of Lewis Gilbert changes the Roger Moore films forever. He hires Christopher Wood to help him uh, write the film. But it's Gilbert who decides to fix what he felt was wrong with the Roger Moore movies and that they were trying to write him too much like Connery. And instead, he thinks they need to write towards Moore's skill set. But also, he, he feels like he's bringing Bond closer to the books. He wants him English, very smooth, with a good sense of humor. And that's exactly who Moore is. Um, and then, luckily enough, Gilbert and Moore have the same sense of humor. And so I think, I honestly think he's the reason, he's the linchpin for this movie and why it works so well. It's interesting, you know, that you, this is sort of the danger of treating the James Bond books like uh, like holy books of a religion, because you you can kind of look at it one way and say, oh, okay, well, Fleming described Bond this way, therefore... Uh, Connery is closest to him in this respect, or Lazenby is closest to that description in this respect. Put it in the hands of Lewis Gilbert, and he can find this, you know, English smooth sense of humor and say, okay, here's how I will interpret that description with this actor that I have in this context. So it's sort of a wide open field at that point. And there are enough books to go around and enough uh, pages of description to go around that you can really decide which way to push or pull the character to fit the story that you're going to tell. Yeah, I and I, I think, too, that it's nice that he does bring this different feel to it completely. You know, if you compare it to the one we just most recently watched, it definitely felt, and I don't want to keep repeating myself, but more goofy and, you know, more about the ridiculous puns. And this definitely felt like it had far less of them, but still had one or two in there, but that they were more, like you said, Matt, like that smoothness um, and, you know, not quite so over the top. I think that it's nice to see that it's still the same actor playing Bond, but then like you're seeing him in a new light that you feel like this is a much more serious film. And, and yet you can still have these bits in there where he can somehow pull a fish out of his car and toss it as if it was a dirty handkerchief um, and look so cool doing it. Whereas everyone else would look like, Oh, I had this fish get in there, you know? Um, so I, I, I loved it. It, w- it was something that, as I was doing the research, watching the extras, uh, diving back into this movie, I was noticing, and, and so specifically watching the movie after that, was really seeing a huge difference in the way that Gilbert directs, the way that Moore reacts to the script and what he's doing, Everything about Moore is comfortable in the film. Like, he is comfortable. You can sense that he is in his element, and he is finally James Bond. Like, he is James Bond at this moment. He's fully embodied the character in a way that he hasn't been able to do necessarily in the other two films where there are parts of him that are having to mimic other another Bond you know, um, I specifically think of the scene when, you know, he's uh, threatening to break Maud's arm, you know, uh, and the man with the golden gun. That's not Connery, you know. He's he's going to 
he's going to sex that out of you. He's not going to break your arm, you know? Uh, so th- that's just his character. He's the romancer. Uh, and I really, I really think it, it's, it, it was just what kids meant, uh, you know, uh, destiny or whatever that brought Gilbert to this role or this directing job because he understood more and he understood what more needed to play the character. And I, I think we're all the better for it in the sense that, um, at least the Roger Moore that we get just feels more like uh, what it should. Which makes me want to ask you guys. So they completely made this story up. And um, it just, you know, a whole cloth, they're they're just, they you know, they definitely took some pieces for some other bonds and everything. Uh, in fact, even uh, the, I'm thinking, is it Diamonds Are Forever, where the satellites are being stolen by something that's in space, you know? Uh so they kind of take that idea and put it in the ocean. Uh, but I just wanted to ask you guys, what do you think of them? Just, I mean, they create an entire new story for James Bond. How do you think they did coming up with something that isn't referenced in any of the books except for the title? I honestly think that it was a really good, um, well put together plot for being start you know starting from just a title okay you're given the spy who loved me what are you going to do with it you know um it's it feels like it does take a little piece from all of the prior bond films and that you have this super villain he's getting missiles to do something big um you know and then obviously you have several different women involved that are um, that sacrificial lamb kind of character, although my husband even pointed out, it feels like they're purposely bringing women in in this movie just to kill them off. <laughs> because, you know, you have Naomi in the helicopter that Bond shoots with a missile and you have um, the girl that he's with at the beginning in the chalet that ends up getting killed. And it just feels like everybody but Anya, it's, if they're a woman in this movie, they are dead. <laughs> But I, I think that overall, you know, it's an interesting um, plot that they came up with. And, and like I said, I think inspired by all the prior films for sure. And I like this idea of space is not the final frontier. It's the bottom of the ocean, man. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, as far as creating a new story, I mean, that, that's an inevitability anyway. You're going to run out of uh, uh, original Ian Fleming stories that you can base uh, a movie on. And even then, as I've always said, a movie is under no obligation to a book, and the audience shouldn't necessarily expect that a movie perfectly reflects a book. It is a little weird that you have the same title. (laughs) I'll admit that. It's kind of a strange thing to grapple with. Um, But, you know, there's sort of a, a school of thought that says that there are only so many original ideas and, and what we end up doing is sort of retelling stories and remixing stories. And yeah, you might get something new out of that the more you retell and, and remix. But um, there are only so many plots to go around. And particularly in this world that we have of James Bond, well, you have some certain predetermined limits. You have an English spy. You've got world intrigue. You have to have a guy taking over the world or threatening to destroy it or threatening people in some way. There are certain elements that will simply always be there. And I'm kind of okay with that because 
whenever we see movies in a franchise, what we expect is the same but different. And what we got here was sort of the perfect culmination of the same but different. It's like the Bond remix. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, right, I just... Right, What I think they're able to do in this this movie, and, and I think what kind of makes it the Mary Poppins of Bond, uh, and then it's practically perfect in every way. It's not perfect, but it's practically perfect. Uh, and it's perfectly over the top for this time period's Bond. They're, they're, they don't push it too far yet. You know, it, it's it's as far uh, over the top as it needs to be as a Bond film, but yet there's still some grounded elements to it. I mean, a tanker that could swallow submarines, not that crazy. Uh, a, you know, a city rising out of the, the, the ocean. Well, that's something that was based on something in Japan that was going on at the time. Uh, so that's not all that crazy. I mean, um... Probably the craziest thing in this movie is that the Russians, uh, the British, and the Americans end up working together. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the craziest thing that happens in this movie, really. Um, I, I mean, uh, and you could you could probably make a submarine car. Uh, so I mean, it, it's it's so wonderfully fantastical in the sense that it's not pushing it so far that you don't believe it anymore. It it allows you to suspend your belief, disbelief. Just enough so that you're like, oh, yeah, you can totally make that happen. And I think that's um, that's a real testament to the writers, I think, for the most point. Yeah, I mean, none of us are asking a James Bond movie to be realistic because we realize that this is not a realistic series of movies or a realistic character. But what we do expect is a kind of internal consistency and a consistency in the world that they create. In this movie, from beginning to end, the world that they create is consistent. It is believable in the context of the movie. That's all we want out of it. There's no point that you step away from it and say, well, that could never happen. (laughs) You know? Because in that world, it could. And, I mean, when was the first, I'm going to call it an amphibicar, made? Because that's immediately what I thought of. I've seen a car before that could drive into a lake and then suddenly become a boat. Yeah, they were popularized in the 60s. There's footage of LBJ scaring his friends by driving his Amphicar into the water. So, yeah. Yeah, we have, uh, if you go up yeah. to Seattle, they have them uh, as tour boats uh, and, and cars. They'll take you around the city. Nice. And then they'll drive into, uh, you know, the bays there and take you around. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, what I also thought was kind of cool and, and maybe even timely for us, you know, what a wonderful time to see film take Russia and Britain and America and have them all work together. And, you know, this is 77, and it foreshadows, I think, you know, just a little over a decade later when Reagan and Gorbachev kind of work together to forge a relationship that's going to make a wall fall, that's going to change the world. And, you know, I think it's kind of neat to think that maybe in some very tiny, small minuscule way maybe bond had something to do with that of changing some attitudes for people around the world you know who knows i'm not saying it did but i'm not saying it's an impossible ability to think that it could have uh because the world was definitely changing in the relationships uh between the powers and uh, i really did like that idea (laughs) and the theme that you know what 
if we're going to have mutually assured destruction, it's going to be on our terms, not some rogue agent, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that, no, 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 that's, that's America, Britain, and Russia. We have that power, not you. Um, but it was, it was kind of a nice thing to just, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just when we're recording this in 2017 it, it it was nice to see Russia be cool with America and Britain. Well, and it's nice, I think, for something like Bond, and then I've also felt the same way with Star Wars, that it it holds no borders. It can identify with anyone in, in anywhere in the world. And it's, you know, fascinating to see that people want to see it and identify with it and that it seems like they're kind of trying to tell that with this story that they came together for the common good. And maybe that's a tiny message that they're trying to send. Yeah, I mean, the, gosh, the, the thought that even Russia, Britain, and America at that point still has an idea what the common good is, and that's not all of us dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice to think that, that we could think like that as the human race. You know, like, I don't, I, I guess the world we live, I don't necessarily know if that's true anymore, and that's kind of <laughs> sad. Uh, yeah. That uh, maybe you know the Soviet Union and 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 America and Britain at that time period had a better inkling of like what the common good is. Maybe we need to watch more Bond movies together. I don't know. <laughs> um, everybody get some popcorn. It's Bond time. But yeah, I just I, that was something that was just kind of really nice about the movie, um, and just reminds you, like you said, Christy, of like what is the common good. You know, and to have that little theme run throughout the film, I think is, you know, we we don't really necessarily most of the time, especially in these Bond films, talk about themes. I think the Craig films have a lot of that. I don't know. That one was good, you know, and definitely what the world needs now. (laughs) Good songs. Bond. James Bond. (laughs) Um, And maybe, too, taking uh, J.W. Pepper out finally helped. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank thank God there's no J.W. Pepper in this film. Um, That that was the best decision they ever made. Um, Mm -hmm. With this storyline and and just kind of the film in general, I I did want to ask you guys, because something that I noticed watching it this time, I was actually disappointed in the climax of the film. When we got to the the, the confrontation between Bond and the villain, I felt that it, it felt very anticlimactic. It was very small. And I don't, I don't what did you guys, did, did that strike you that way or was it okay for you? Because I, I, maybe I'm just, I, I don't, the, the rest of the movie is so hyped up. And this just felt so like, oh, wow, that that was quick. Well, here's the thing. I think that Stromberg is actually the weakest element of the film. So the his plot is interesting. His motivation is interesting. Certainly the set pieces, all the trappings of his villainous life are interesting. Um, but he is completely overshadowed by Roger Moore in this movie. Now you know, sort of play armchair quarterback and you think, who are the actors that could have done a better job in that role? Take a guy, of course, this is 1977, so take a guy at the time like uh, like a James Mason or somebody. Put put a person like that in the role. I'm just going with the Nemo theme because of the ocean, but whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> somebody who's got 
a lot of power, a lot of presence on screen. Or, you know, fast forward several years and, and take some of the great villain actors now. And, and I think somebody who could really match what Moore brought to the role really would have helped that. It, it wouldn't have felt like such a weak ending uh, to to his story. I think it's only because we didn't quite get enough out of Kurt Jurgens. Um, by the way, I also felt like uh, his voice, it sounded like a voice that Tony Curtis would do as like a, a, like a cartoon voice <laughs> or something. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, All right, Tony Curtis, do your uh, European bad guy accent. Go. Yeah. Yeah, I think also for me, there wasn't even enough buildup to make him seem like this menacing villain. I mean, it was interesting and eerie at first when you see him in the dining room and then see that he has a shark tank viewing window and then all of the paintings come up and you see that he's surrounded by it. Um, but then from there, it seems like it's just this guy pushing buttons to make things happen. And it's not even in an indignant way, like I slammed the button down and this is what happened. It, it just feels like you don't get much of him. And then what you do get, it does come across very weak. And then, like you said, Matt, at the end, it feels like you're just not even getting much out of that climax there either. Um, I, I definitely agree. I don't know if it would have been... I think more that it was not the actor in the role as much as just the way that the he was written. You're absolutely, you, Christy, I think you nailed something that I just, uh, yeah, he sits in a chair and you press orange for murder. <laughs> you know, like, because it's all these like colored buttons and you just like, yeah, he just presses one and like somebody ends up in a shark tank dead. You know, it's just, I, you're absolutely right. They're, they don't really give him anything to do in the movie. Uh, he kind of sits and monologues a little bit, and that's about it. And, and talks about how he likes you know, living under the sea. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. a apparently, you know, him and Sebastian and the Little Mermaid would get along great. Um, so, but yeah, you really did nail the problem with the villain that I have, and it's the, it, it is the only weak point. Now, his, his plan and what he's doing... I think are diabolical and, and, and genius, you know, to basically try to start World War Three, where it's mutually assured destruction except for him and he'll live under the sea happily ever after. Um, I don't think he realizes that nuclear fallout will destroy the oceans as well. Mm -hmm. Apparently Thank you. he hasn't. Thank you for that pointing through. that out. Yes. Um, science. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, sorry, yes. science. Um <laughs> yeah. you know, and if I know that, then you're in trouble, buddy. Um so it it was very strange to me his his plan. Um, now to just get them to destroy each other that's one thing, but the way he's doing it and going about it would mean the world would be uninhabitable for hundreds of years, you know, and maybe ever. So I I do have to say that he has very understanding neighbors because as soon as Stromberg moved into Sardinia and just random explosions happen in the sky yeah, and underwater, I mean, yeah. and people, they're cool. They're cool. They're like, oh, oh, it's it's Carl. <laughs> Can't stop that guy. <laughs> oh, Carl. Can't stop that guy from pushing the orange button, you know? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It, well, they're, they're, it's all the wine, you know? It's the it red is. wine and the sun. It is. You know, it just yeah. gets to you. And, uh, you know, as long as cars are coming out, it's, it's cool. Uh, and it's strange to me because 
the the best like henchman villain in the movie is really what we get in Jaws, who is a character from the um, Spy Who Loved Me, the Fleming novel, except he's called Horror in that book. Uh, and they kind of redesign him and reimagine him in just a little bit and create Jaws, who becomes one of the most memorable henchmen. I mean, I think next to Odd Job, he's probably number two, is my guess. Absolutely. And he's in the next movie, Absolutely. too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yep. I think that um, yep. what, what I was wondering as well was do you think that they named him Jaws and did the whole thing with the teeth also, also because they wanted to have Spielberg? <laughs> And it was like a, a leftover tribute to Spielberg. Like, we know you're not here, but we wish you were. Nice. That's a good question. I like it. I don't know the answer, he's, but. He's so good, though, in the role. And partly because they found out while filming that he actually is just kind of funny. And so he, cre- he, he, he created his own comedic timing with everything. And the director, uh, Gilbert, found out that he was somebody who was pretty good with humor and understood that. And Gilbert had grown up with the vaudeville and everything. And so they worked on that together to give him some more comedic elements. And um, it is funny where the, your henchman kind of becomes like the lovable henchman. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you like don't totally hate him. Although I'm watching this movie uh, with my wife and it's her first time to see it. And she was just like, grossed out by him like biting people to death <laughs> uh because that is really disturbing like it's that's, really messy too uh, it's yeah very messy can you imagine how many times you'd have to change your suit and like when you're seven four where do you get new suits like that mm-hmm. yeah right right um you you pointed out something that we've talked about before where you need to have the element of humor. It's like the, the Bond films realize that they need to remind the audience, this is just a movie, this is just for fun. Um, but that element of humor has to be done right where it's something natural in the moment and you're not stopping to tell a joke. And that was always the problem with J.W. Pepper is you're stopping the movie to tell a joke and it's pandering in the worst possible way. But then you take a character like Jaws, who is terrifying, you know, by every measure, it's a terrifying character, but you're going to sort of let a little bit of the air out by giving him this sort of human element of having some humor. And they struck the right balance. That's a very hard thing to do, and we don't always see that balance played correctly in the Bond movies. And I will add, to the humor to me felt almost like it was suddenly a vampire movie. <laughs> Yeah, right. my wife was like, yeah. "Is he kind of like a vampire?" Yeah, like he gave him a or... love bite. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and one of the things that I also liked him in, like, I think he he has those moments where he can turn on the terror. Like, I think when he's attacking Anya in the train, that is very terrifying because he's so much bigger than she is. Yeah, and it it's just this. Oh well, yeah, kind of creepy scene, you know, and 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 part of it is that you know she's not wearing very much, and so it has this whole other connotation, which makes it super scary. And then you know it it turns into that humorous thing where Bond kicks him out of the train and he's fine, you know. So it's like they 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 understand how to play with the character, uh, and it is very strange to me that in a lot of ways, 
and we'll talk about this in the next movie that you 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 come to somehow identify with this henchman. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's it's well done. I, I think um, you know Jaws is a great addition to the Bond canon in the same way that Oddjob was, and I think what we talked about with Knickknack, you know, as well, uh, just becomes somebody really memorable uh, in the pantheon of, of Bond henchmen. So, which I, I this is a different section than we normally have, but, but I say a, a new Bond woman uh, because I think Barbara Box Anya is their attempt to create a woman who is, in every way, James Bond's equal. And I wanted to ask you, just just straight up, especially, Christy, do you feel like they succeed in that, in creating somebody who is actually James Bond equal? Like, you felt that did, did you as you watched the film? Yeah, I definitely did, especially in the scene where she and Bond are in the van together in Egypt, and it's like she wants to drive and, you know, she's telling him what to do. And, you know, even though she's in an evening dress in the middle of Egypt, she's like, I've got this. Get out of my way. And uh, like he's always bugging her. Um, I think that they also um, really give her that same suave charisma, um, you know, commanding presence in a room like they do with Roger Moore. I, I like that you don't notice it like I, I didn't as much um, until you pointed that out that they really do make them feel like they pit off one another. And that scene in the bar that you mentioned where she starts talking about like, I know you and I know these things about you. And he's like, no, don't touch that. You don't know me. We're working together, but that's mine. I really think that she had this refreshing air about her that bond women didn't usually and and that she kind of commands respect yeah i i think barbara bach is wonderful and i think this character is great and the thing that i kept thinking as i was watching it when i got to the end of it um yeah there are some cheesy scenes whatever so what um a less skilled writer would have had a single arc for that character they meet She's an enemy. A turning point comes. They fall in love. The end. Or love to the extent that you have a love story in a Bond movie, you know. <laughs> but in this, there were so many more layers to what was going on. And I loved going back and rewatching scenes where there's a sort of like cute, playful flirtation between them, particularly on the train scene when they first arrive at, uh, on the train. And these moments where, like, there's a little jealousy when we meet Naomi. And all these little moments that could have very easily just been brushed by and, and just playing the scene for what's in the scene. But these two actors, Roger Moore and Barbara Bach, get to actually play all the layers of a relationship in this movie that is very strained, has all these ups and downs, it's so refreshing and great to see that. She has so much more to do than really any of the Bond women that we've had before. And I don't think they really match that again in 
well, many of the later movies that come after this is only certain moments where, where we get to have that kind of thing again. And, and it's not deadly serious. They, they are playing kind of the lightness of it, but it was really lovely to see that they're having fun with it and they're finding all the multiple facets that they can play. And they, they just, they, they have chemistry. They have chemistry. And it, it, it's, it's this mini relationship on screen and all these layers. And I was going to say too, I think I, I like what you said that it, you know, that it goes along with a relationship. And then too, that they have these moments where they toy with whether or not they're going to go that route where, you know, he and she are on the boat together and you think, Oh, he's just going to, you know, um, woo her completely like he does every other woman. And then she blows the smoke in his face and knocks him out and she's gone and has right. the microfilm with her. And you're like, Whoa, was not expecting that. Yep. Yep. She's just great. It, it's uh, it's interesting because the last time that we had a, a Russian agent was like this was from Russia with love and um, a, I think a, a good Bond woman in Tanya uh, and not quite Bond's equal, but I don't know if they really, uh, you know, she's not Agent Triple X, you know, I, she's not uh, a... Um, <laughs> supposed to be a spy in the same way as as James is, uh, and then I think honestly the the strongest and still for me the best Bond woman is uh, Tracy, uh, and and mainly because she doesn't have to try to be Bond's equal in in job, she is Bond's equal in in like force of character. Uh, but what they were able to, I think to do with Anya was to create a a woman who mirrored James Bond. And didn't come off as like, uh, really? I mean, this is just not working. You know, like, they actually do it. And I think the only place where I have a little bit of like, mm, um, is at the very end where she plays a little bit too damsel in distress when they're trying to, to get off Atlantis. Because she's not really helping Bond do anything at that moment. She is um, literally tied to a chair. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know? I, it's after yeah. that. It's after no, no, that. No, no, I, I know, but yeah. I mean... But you're absolutely that, right. She's literally it, tied to a chair, so she doesn't get to yeah. do anything. Um, yeah. And But other than that, I really think she 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 is his equal. And like you said, John, they do create this really fascinating relationship between them. And what I also really like, and, and people may discount this, but... I liked that she forgave James at the end mm -hmm. that that she could just as James would understand it's this is what you do in the line of this type of surface. And she, just like James would, would let that go uh, and and understand one, he doesn't even know who he's killing at that point. He's just trying to get away. Uh, and two, uh, she understands the life that she's in. And if you're going to love a spy, they're probably going to die. And that rhymed. Um, <laughs> That's nice. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, 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 I thought that that really gave her that strength there because they actually went there with her to make her just like James in that way and not make it seem weird. I don't think it makes her weak. I don't makes it make her think it, it, it makes it feel like, oh, it's just James Bond and his magic. You know what? She can't resist. No, I think it makes her like him and that she understands because they have that conversation uh, before all the big stuff starts happening. And, well, I, and it's about you. 
you know I was trying to survive. James saying, you know I, I, I was just trying to survive. And when you're going 40 miles an hour down a hill and somebody's trying to kill you, it's you mm-hmm. or them. That's just the way it is. Yeah. That, that, that's a great scene in this movie. And I, I think it helps that you establish that these two people are coming from the same world. So then when there is chemistry between them, you believe it a little better other than like you just pointed out, where it's Bond's magic magic pants, let's say. It's Bond's magic pants that just sort of wins the day and he doesn't have to do anything for that. But in this, you you actually believe it more. It, again, in the totally unbelievable context of the movie, there's stuff in there to believe because they have this common ground. They have this common understanding. So those moments where it's a seduction, it's playful, it's flirty, you believe that and you're sort of pulling for it as much as you believe the moments where she's horrified at who he is. They, they work equally well. And, and I, I loved rediscovering those moments in this movie. Can I just say one thing that doesn't work uh, when they're together? is when they're in the van driving away and they're playing the freaking circus music. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's no good. Don't do that. <laughs> stop that. Uh, anyway, I was just really mad about that. I was like, stop it with the stupid gags like that. Remember the penny whistle? Yeah. Yeah. We should make yeah, shirts yeah. with these f- quotes on them, like the front that says, Remember the penny <laughs> whistle. Remember the penny whistle. <laughs> <laughs> just wear them around Hollywood, yeah. folks. Make people remember the penny whistle. Don't do it. Don't use it. But um, I did want to ask, too, um, also thinking about her character, if you guys remembered at the beginning when they introduce her, that at first you're thinking that the Agent Triple X is going to be the man. And then you right. see her push the button right. and you go, oh. Mm-hmm. Yep. That That's a great moment. Um, I, I feel like... I don't know if that was the first movie to do that kind of a fake out in this sort of a context. I feel like we've seen that kind of thing since then. Um, But it it plays really nicely here. The other thing that plays nicely is that Bond has the loudest ticker for his watch with the- Oh yeah, uh, the label maker. (laughs) Spitting out his top secret messages. Yeah, uh, hang on, just wait. Oh yeah, still coming through, still (laughs) coming through. Okay, there's more, sorry. You've gotta stop sending such long messages. Right. And, and how does that even fit in that watch? <laughs> I like, know. In the band. Right. That tape, right. no way. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Oh, wait, their message cut off. I got to go buy more <laughs> tape, reload oh. the watch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, I absolutely love that, Christy. I, I thought that was a, a great moment. And, and again, we've seen that before, but if, if you're seeing it then, I, I think it is an original thing to do, uh, to fake you out. And uh, they, they do that throughout the film, though, where they, uh, when they're sitting there with their respective bosses, and talking through all this, they keep one-upping each other with asinine information. Uh, and, you know, the Russian guy's finally like, well, with both of them, we should be fine. You know, like, um, they'll love working together. And that, I mean, that's an awful Russian accent. I'm, I'm so sorry, you know. Um, it's so cold in this country. Um, anyway, I apologize. I just, I love that, you know, that they they do these little things to just kind of remind you who both of these people are. And I think it makes for a new Bond woman. And like you said, John, uh, it's not going to be something we see repeated very often. And um, that's disappointing. Uh, But part of that is that where Tracy created one type of Bond woman that was very strong, uh, I think 
Anya created another type of Bond woman that was very strong, and they kind of became archetypes for the series. And a lot of times, they the, what they try to do later just kind of pales in comparison to them um, because it's it's almost as if they're afraid to try maybe making a different type of Bond woman that doesn't have to just be a carbon copy of one of those two types. Um, or just the classic damsel in distress. So, um, but this, they, uh, you know, they nail it. Uh, other, otherwise, uh, like, there's really only one Bond woman to talk about because all the other ones barely have names and then they die, so. Oh, but wait a minute. I, I have mad love for Caroline Monroe as uh, Naomi. Of course, she was in Star Crash, starring the great David Hasselhoff and with Christopher Plummer, uttering one of the great lines of cinematic history, Battleship, stop the flow of time, you know. <laughs> um, and she had her own. Uh, she she was doing a, um, uh, a ad campaign, and that's where they actually got her look mm-hmm. uh, yep. from. The look yep. that she has basically came from the ad campaign that they did with yeah. her. Um, she's gorgeous, and I, I mean, in a movie full of gorgeous women, she is a, a another gorgeous woman. Um, mad love for Valerie Leon, the uh, hotel receptionist. I mean, this. Here's the thing. Yeah, I, I'm all right. I, I'm sounding maybe a, a little uh, immature and incorrect here to just constantly point out the beautiful women in this movie, but but I'm doing it for a reason. This movie is sort of the ultimate expression of 70s excess at its finest. Matt, you and I talked about Flash Gordon and my mad love for that movie that's sort of the fever dream, cocaine-fueled, Studio 54 science fiction masterpiece that it is. Absolutely. (laughs) Spy Who Loved Me, Spy Who Loved Me is sort of like the haute couture version of that, where it's just this fabulous beautiful, sexy, fun decadence on screen, but done in a way that you don't hate yourself after watching it. So, you know, you've got Roger Moore just looking resplendent in everything that he's wearing. The man's wearing a tuxedo in God knows how many hundred degrees in Egypt, but looking like a million bucks, even sweaty and with the tie undone walking through those uh, those ruins. Um the clothes for the women in this movie are beautiful. And, uh, well, except for the first woman that Stromberg kills. Her, she needs a style makeover. But anyway, but everybody else. She gets looks one. At, it's called a shark. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. Right. A little extreme, little extreme, you know. Yeah, shark um, makeover week is not as exciting as you think it would be. Right, right. But but the style now has finally caught up with where it should be. We talked about how these first few movies of the decade uh, uh, Diamonds Are Forever and um, Man with the Golden Gun and Live and Let Die, they hadn't quite found a style language that really fit. They were starting to get there a little bit more with The Man with the Golden Gun, but now everything's firing on all cylinders. Even that Lotus, just the, the shape of that car, like now we've got a car that is worthy of the world that Bond lives in, you know? So everything gels here. I I think it's time to just free for all it because there's a lot to just kind of talk about things in the movie and John I think you've uh, hit the opening salvo perfectly. Um, let me be honest, I don't love the Lotus. I think Ooh, I, oh, okay. I it's not my style vehicle that I mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. but uh, what they do with it I think is fantastic. 
Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, uh, I don't generally like uh, late 70s, early 80s car design. Yeah. Um, but that, the the idea that they had with it to just push the over-the-topness just enough to make it a submarine car yeah. is, is a phenomenal work on their part. And just really fun. I mean, just really fun. And, and it's done right so you buy it. It's not like an invisible Aston Martin. Ugh, you don't yes. buy that, mm-hmm. all right? But you buy this because it works in context. And the same way that you can't look at an Aston Martin DB5 without thinking of James Bond, you cannot look at a White Lotus Esprit Turbo without thinking of James Bond's submarine car. They absolutely own it for this movie. And I got to say, I was really excited that I was watching this with my husband. And I said, that's a Lotus. And I didn't even know... <laughs> A hundred percent. And I was like, man, props to my car knowledge that I didn't realize I had. <laughs> nice. nice. Oh, man. Um, well, so just kind of free falling. I think one of the things that's so incredible about the movie is that obviously we start off with one of the best Bond stunts ever. Oh, I mean, oh. that that ski jump is just incredible. And then the parachute into the flag. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. The cherry on top. And, and then, it's real. It and is it's real. real. It's, this is the important yeah. thing here. And, and they, they did it more than once, too. Oh, like, oh because they, wow. they, uh, they, the, I was watching the extras, and the man, and I apologize for not having his name readily available, who did the stunt, they caught it on a camera, but they only got one, and it, it, they kind of lost the angle, and then they finally got one that just, like, the camera was able to follow him all the way down. And it's just it, it's just an incredible thing, and and that's the thing that, you know, again held Bond movies over a lot of other movies, which was they were doing the stunts for real, and it, it, it's something that Bonds held in high regard for a long time. As, especially I think when you know they came back with Casino Royale, and that whole running on top of all of those buildings, the beginning with the parkour, all that's real. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so it, they they brought back that feeling, uh, that Bond feeling. And then, of course, you transition into one of the best Bond songs ever. And then it goes into one of the best Bond movies ever. And it's just like <laughs> everything about the movie from start to finish, I think, it just, it fits. And part of that to me was, I think, actually having Ken Adams back as the designer because the design work in here was just outstanding in every sense of the word. It's everything that was good about what Ken Adam did from the beginning, going back to Dr. No, and then flash forward a bit to You Only Live Twice with that magnificent volcano lair. It's all of that design language, but then updated and enhanced and tweaked for the 70s. And again, 70s get a bad rap when it's bad, and rightfully so, because there's a lot of terrible design in that period. But this is all of the best of that. And whether it's the interior of the Atlantis, which is beautiful, or even in the interior of the Liparis. I mean, we forget that there's, it's not just one volcano layer here. We get two magnificent set pieces out of this movie. Um, One of my favorite little behind-the-scenes trivia bits is that uh, this was the last movie that uh, Claude Renoir shot as DP. His eyesight was failing. Uh, So he worked as a cameraman later, but not as DP. And uh, because he 
was not quite capable of lighting uh, a set as vast as the interior of the Laparis, Stanley Kubrick lit that set. Hmm. I, absolutely mind-blowing. I thought it was so cool. And that, of course, that set is the reason they built the, the Bond stage at Pinewood Studios. So you could fit three submarines in there, two-thirds scale, only two-thirds scale, right? I mean, only. <laughs> only, <laughs> right? You know. Come on, guys. Um, but those scenes are wonderful. The, I, I love the sort of the action, the heroism of these submarine crews from these different parts of the world. I love all the, they're, they're gung-ho, going back to, to take the control room. Every little bit of those, those scenes, I think, are just fantastic. Um, going back to that stunt at the beginning, I, I just wanted to add one quick thing to say that I don't think any of us cares that it's not Roger Moore in those scenes. We have that one bad process shot oh, where he's just sort of like gliding bad. by, the green right? Screen. You know, but, but we, yeah, yeah. But we do that because we, we're just telling the audience, okay, remember this is the actor who's playing James Bond. But other than that, you don't care that it's not him. You don't care that it's a stunt man because, by God, they're going to do that stunt for real. And the music. Yeah, it might be dated. It's still kick-ass. I love Bond 77. And the fact that Marvin Hamlish did all of the score for this, it doesn't sound like any other Bond score. It is its own thing. And again, it's the height of what was good about the 70s, <laughs> overplayed and ruined by so many other movies and so many other musicians and so many other directors. You know, But, but this is getting it right. You know, th this is the one for the archive. Talking about the other stunts in the film as well. I mean, of course, that was the big one. Um, but the chase with the guy in the motorcycle and having a rocket come off the sidecar and mm. then having mm. Naomi in the helicopter and then having um, Jaws in the car with the other henchmen all shooting at him. I mean, it feels like you have so many stunt people in this movie and they're doing a great job. Yes. Well, and and. Pushing Jaws out of the train. That's a real stunt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was incredible. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it was the same stunt guy who was the stunt man for Roger. Uh, and he was only, I think, 6'2", maybe. Mm. So they were able to make it work somehow with the angles and everything to make you not realize it wasn't somebody who was 7'4". Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's just... Um, you know, I, I think... I guess it's time to probably to rate this one, but I I think on a whole, what what I love about this is that it like you said, John. I think you kind of nailed it. It it is they got everything that's right about the seventies in this movie, and there's no excess. So you're like, oh, you know, it just <laughs> it, it it again. It just kind of feels practically perfect. So what, Christy, uh, rating? Uh, the Spy Who Loved Me, what do you think? Sure. So this one was a lot higher for me, um, as we probably expected, <laughs> than uh, the last Bond film. Um, I overall give it a 7 out of 10. Um, I'm going to go with bearskin rugs, because I feel Ooh, like that's very nice. classy. 
Um, nice. And uh, that's because the the two biggest things that really hit home for me were the the stunts, of course, um, and then the the costume design. I felt like the you know, of course, the plot I thought was wonderful, and that they did a great job starting from nothing and creating this web. Um, but then also, I really, like I said, noticed the um, evening gown that Anya got to wear with what looked like diamond encrusted edges and that she was still able to go and be completely, you know, badass and everything Cairo. Um, and I loved Jaws. I think that he's a really great henchman that, like you said, Matt kind of turns more into the, the more recognizable villain in the movie. Um, and that, you know, at the end of the day, it, it really has, almost everything I would want to be a perfect Bond movie. Um, I think for anything for me is going to be hard to get 10 out of 10, but this comes pretty close. You know, I uh, I would take away a point for sure about um, Stromberg. I, I think, Christy, you, you really hit the nail on the head about the weakness of that character. However, I do think that the the sort of charisma the chemistry that we have between Roger Moore and Barbara Bach and really just following their story. The bad guy is almost secondary in this case. There's the argument to be made that the hero is only as good as the villain. This might be one of those movies where that's just not the case, <laughs> where that the hero is just the hero. I think, admittedly, I'm also going to color my view of this movie with a lot of nostalgia. This is the first Bond movie I remember seeing in theaters. This is one of the first Bond movies that I remember having the toys, having the Lotus Esprit from Corgi, um, having the the Corgi uh, helicopter, Naomi's helicopter uh, with the Stromberg logo on it. Um, this this is probably also one of the first soundtrack albums that I own too. So the imagery from this movie, the art from this movie, the feel of this movie, uh, they feel like they're just a part of my DNA. And this is a world that I would want to live in, you know? If I could pick any uh, bad guy lair from any James Bond movie, I think Atlantis is it for me. Um, may need a little help with decoration, but whatever. Um, I also feel like this is a movie that it's important to understand when we talk about the breadth of all the Bond movies. Connery, Lazenby, Moore, Dalton, uh, uh, Pierce Brosnan and going up to Daniel Craig. We're talking about one big thing here. It's not a competition. It's not a comparison of, well, this guy's better than that guy for this reason, for that. It's not about that anymore. It's about, do you make the best movie you can make given the tools that you're given? given the script, given the actor, given the effects, given the skills of the director, do you make the best movie you can make given the resources that you have? This is the rare movie where they made the best movie they could make with the resources they had. For that reason, I'm going to give us a very rare 11 out of 10 Lotus Esprit Turbos. Wow. I, oh, yeah. Um. Yeah, I just I, I just broke six oh two club. You just broke me. I got uh, okay. I don't know what to say to that because <laughs> that's an incredible rating. And I I think what makes this movie special, um, 
is kind of everything that I had said before, which was this is the movie that understood exactly how far to take Bond in this time period, and it didn't step a toe over the line. It, it just got it. it uh, maybe, I guess maybe the toe is the stupid, you know, circus music, but uh, that's a minor quibble. Indeed. Um, and so everything else, though, about this movie just works so perfectly that it's Roger Moore and, and it's Bond in this era at its finest. And, and sadly, Roger Moore's Bond will never be better than this. And that's a frustrating thing when you think that there's quite a few more movies left <laughs> in his yeah. repertoire. But this is such a hallmark of Bond and it stands up there with the best Bonds ever. I mean, this is definitely, you know, top 10, top 12 Bond. Easy, no question. And, uh, you know, so for me, this is this is four out of five, you know, guys drinking wine, shocked that a lotus is coming out of the water. <laughs> um, and mainly and, and mainly it's four out of five just because, uh, I, honestly, the movie is weak in the villain sense. Yeah. But everything else covers that up. So really, yeah, I mean, it's it's it, as I said, it's it's the Mary Poppins of Bond movies. And so it's it's almost it's almost perfect and and i just absolutely enjoyed watching this with and and talking about it with you guys and hopefully as we've talked about it we've talked about roger moore um you know we've helped you remember him well and we wish you from the 602 club roger moore godspeed and uh i can't wait to see you one day because i think i know i will um and uh and so thank you for all you did for us and um Thank you for listening, everyone. We really appreciate it. Um, I've got some guys who have been with me for a very long time here in the 602 Club as associate producers, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. Uh, fantastic gentlemen. And they support this entire network, uh, as many people do, through Patreon. And it's a, it's, a vast, it's a vast network that we need because this is a vast network <laughs> that we run. And we need your help to do it. Uh, and, and the best way to do that is to go over to patreon.com slash trekofm and see how you can help become part of our team. Uh, a little bit of support each and every month from uh, listeners just like you make sure that we can do that. And so we have many par- perks that we like to give back to you with, with early access to content. If you're at a certain level, you can be on the Patreon's roundtable. Uh, so many things like that. We just want to make sure that we can... Do what we hope you're loving, which is bring you great ad-free content each and every week. And so, again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. I am overjoyed by the fact that I have such a great team who loves talking Bond with me. And honestly, this show would be boring without them. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me, uh, both of you. And uh, Christy, let everybody know where they can find you so they could talk some more Bond or anything else that's going on. Yeah, um, that would be awesome. Uh, if anybody wants to reach me, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at morechristy, M-O-R-R-C-H-R-I-S-T-Y. Um, and I actually just also started writing on a regular basis for a friend of mine's website, fangirlnextdoor.com, um, about pretty much anything to do with, um, Star Wars and fashion and things in that realm. Um, so I, I love Bond and it's most of what I talk about aside from Star Wars. (laughs) Uh, well, John, um, 
let everybody know where they can find you and where they're going to be seeing pictures of your magnificent beards. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to talk Star Trek, look for me at Mission Log. You can find us at missionlogpodcast.com, Mission Log Pod on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I, sadly, no pictures of me there. Uh, but if you want to talk Bond, Talk to me on Twitter at DVD Geeks or just look for me, Facebook, John Champion. It is my real name, not my fake name, not my stage name. Um, so, yeah, John Champion there. And uh, we can talk about our, our love of the spy who loved me. And you can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. You can also find me here in the network doing... The Orb with Chris Jones, where we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, and, of course, uh, Star Wars 602 Club Collection you can find. All of those are on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can find me on the Nerd Party Network uh, talking about a few different shows. I've got Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills talking about Star Wars each and every week, which is just a blast. Harry Potter with Drea Kaufman over on Owl Post, a Harry Potter podcast. And if that's not enough i have a brand new show that's bi-weekly it is all about film through the lens of faith and so if you're interested in that look up on any of your podcatchers cinema stories podcast uh, and so i hope you'll check that out uh let us know what you think give us a review there too uh we'd love for that to happen so thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear the way that you hold me.